Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that. Welcome to episode 7, The Shape of the Data, recorded April 1st. Here in a, it's snowy again in Ontario, if you believe it in April. April Fools, it's on us because it's snowing. You're listening to Snail's Centipede, and the outro today is going to be the song Super Groovy. Thanks again to Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and Christoph Oaks for the use of his music. You can find his album on Spotify and on Bandcamp, and I hear that the second album is in the works. Before moving into the news, allow me to make some corrections in the due diligence section. I mentioned in episode 5 that we may not see the lizard saliva sample that was sent to San Jose again. And I even joked about that, but nope, I was wrong. It turns out that that's going to reappear in this chapter today, so stay tuned for that. I'm sorry, and I am corrected. Also, Michael Jackson's son is apparently not named Blanket. After all, he was christened Prince Michael Jackson II and is only commonly referred to as Blanket, so... I was wrong about that. Sorry, uh, both about, I guess, being wrong and for being commonly referred to as blanket. You got dealt a tough hand on that one, bro. And uh, I stand corrected. Apparently, rabbits cannot puke. Try as I might, uh, they won't do that. So sorry to everyone at the local 4-H meeting and how awkward everything got on Wednesday night. That was my bad. In dinosaur news, we have subaqueous spinosaurs. A subaqueous foraging among carnivorous dinosaurs was released in a, a paper from the magazine Nature on March 23rd. Researchers compared the bone density in aquatic ecologies across extant amniotes, and amniotes are like reptiles, birds, and mammals, though not exclusively just those things, and they believe the comparison has provided a reliable inference of aquatic habits in extinct species. The comparative analysis suggests, quote, strong support for aquatic habits in spinosaurids associated with a marked increase in bone density, which precedes the evolution of more conspicuous anatomical modifications a pattern also observed in other aquatic reptiles and mammals, says the paper. The Field Museum has elaborated on the paper in an article revealing the study's specifics, a data set of femur and rib bone cross-sections from 250 species of extinct and living animals, both land and water dwellers, were crunched in this analysis. Metaphorically crunched. 
Desiring extreme diversity, the animals sampled included seals, whales, elephants, mice, hummingbirds, mosasaurs, plesiosaurs, and dinosaurs. The analysis showed a, quote, clear link between bone density and aquatic foraging behavior. Quote, animals that submerge themselves underwater to find food have bones that are almost completely solid throughout, whereas cross-sections of land-dwellers' bones look more like donuts with hollow centers. When the researchers applied spinosaurid dinosaur bones to this paradigm, they found that Spinosaurus and Baryonyx both had the sort of dense bone associated with full submersion. Meanwhile, closely related Suchomimus had hollower bones. It still lived by the water and ate fish, as evidenced by its crocodile mimic snout and conical teeth, but based on its bone density, it wasn't actually swimming. In other words, the researchers have found it plausible that the animals with a similar bone density to spinosaurs likely lived in similar environments, and therefore spinosaurs should be considered aquatic specialists with, quote, surprising ecological disparity, including subaqueous foraging behavior in spinosaurs and baryonics, and non-diving habits in Suchomimus. Adaptation to aquatic environments appeared in spinosaurids during the early Cretaceous, following their divergence from other tetanurin theropods during the early Jurassic. And uh, the next section here is the 3D three-horner. There's a new 3D triceratops skeleton you can play with in virtual space. My dad sent me a link uh, from a CNN article about a terrific new triceratops horridus display in Melbourne, Australia. And if you'd like an awesome look at the incredible skeleton, you can visit their website, museumvictoria.com.au, and find their Triceratops exhibit. On that page, there's a button that reads, View Horridus in 3D. You click on that bad boy, and you can virtually zoom in, swoop over, rotate, and examine the skeleton from head to tail. And it's really cool, so thanks, Dad. I'll put a direct link in the show notes on the blog for you to check out. Uh, with me for some fun this episode, the sole proprietor of the Storo Browno, who you know as Downtown... It's Robert Brown. <laughs> hey, Ryan. Rob Brown and I met while volunteering as operators during the Save Our Station Telethon Drive in support of Channel U62 back in 1989. Yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> Do you remember when that bum was able to buy all the remaining stocks with the money and he saved the day because he had sold a, a misprinted coin? Yeah, it was a rough time. <laughs> yeah, and then he bought himself a Rolex and he rubbed that in R.J. Fletcher's face. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, good old, good old U62, which was the subject of, um, of the documentary UHF, if you guys ever saw that. It was uh, actually sued into bankruptcy from the civil suits launched by animal rights groups who were infuriated with Raul's Wild Kingdom. You don't remember any part of UHF? I don't remember anything much past uh, 1999. Did you like Weird Al growing up at all? Oh yeah, no, I definitely liked Weird Al. Okay. I grew up on like the the off the deep end album and Alapalooza. Did you buy any of the records? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I never had any of the records. No, I, I I came. I would say I came a little late, maybe, to uh, to Weird Al. Probably high school, I would say. So we're in CDs at that point. Mm -hmm. But the um, well, I'm a little older than you, I guess. So I never had his records. We used to have quite a few comedy records back in the day, but not not Weird Al's. Oh yeah, and the first CD I ever got was uh, off the deep end. My parents were like, why do you even want to get a CD player? You don't have any CDs. I was like, well, I would I would get CDs if I had a CD player. Yeah, I don't... Uh, tell you the truth, I don't know what my first CD was, but... I know my first... I think I, my first CD was uh, Aerosmith's Greatest Hits. Okay. The big ones? Is that what it was called? It might have been, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the... Uh, I, I remember my first... Because the first thing I bought wasn't a CD. It was a uh, cassette tape. I, I remember the very first one I ever bought. I bought two. 
And one was uh, MC Hammer, Hammer Time. <laughs> okay. And one was uh, Bon Jovi, Bad Medicine. All right. You know, those were the two that I bought back in, I don't know, sometime in the 80s. <laughs> and just wore the ribbon right out of the tape. That's awesome. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, the big ones. I'm, a buddy of mine had that. I don't think we ever listened to it, but it was blue, right? The Aerosmith yeah, album? Yeah, yeah, I know it was blue. I remember that I, uh, yeah, back in my teenage years in the farm, that was, uh, used to have the Sony Walkman, or Discman, sorry, Sony Discman, with the uh, Aerosmith. You could put that on. I think it had like 30 tracks on it. And that would get you through a few hours of driving out in the field. Okay, right on. I guess you get really close and intimate with those albums after uh, the long days. Well, especially back then, you had like five. So yeah. it was like... <laughs> I know once, it seems like ages ago now, but I remember asking you about if you'd ever wanted to be on a podcast. You're like, yeah. I'm really sorry that your first time has to be on this one. But, uh, <laughs> but you, you mentioned that it was something you always thought it would be fun to do. I guess you mentioned you had a neat idea for a podcast. What was that? The original one that we talked about was with uh, our buddy James there, who's now passed. Mm-hmm. We had talked about doing, he, he's done so much media and everything else, but we talked about doing a, uh, a historical one where, because we're both big fans of history, so we just figured we'd pick a topic and just talk about it. And with him, it's just a matter of, he's always goes off on, on tangents, so you never know where you're going to end up. You could end up talking about something completely de- different than what you're, <laughs> you're supposed to be talking about. It's kind of like right now. <laughs> yeah. James Mays was great, and it's uh, he just passed away earlier this year. But you're right; he was a, a rock on tour. He could he could go on and on and on. And you you I always felt like it was complete nonsense. Like I thought he was making it up, just making a joke. And but he was right about everything. And he just had a way of spinning the tale that sounded like a complete fantasy. But he was he was he was teaching you things you never knew because it was incredible. There's yeah. just little details about driving by like towns and stuff. Just incredible. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You never knew what was fantasy and what was fact. Like he'd he'd go on and he'd tell these stories, and you always kind of assume that a little bit of it was probably exaggerated at the very least. It, it might be complete BS, but the uh, but he he'd spin a yarn, that's for sure. Yeah, I believed him. Whatever he had to say, I got a hunch that it was true. However, well, like... I'm sure there's there's truth in it, no matter what. It's just <laughs> yeah. a matter of what how much he exaggerated or. And he'd been all over. He was. He was up, up, way up north. He was way out east. He was. He seemed to have a, a knack for having been everywhere and every and done it all. Yeah, he definitely, he definitely knew how to uh, make the most out of life. And he was hilarious too. Well, he tried to be hilarious. I guess he tried to be. the trick with being funny is that you're not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> well, yeah, and he he would try everything though. He'd go back and forth between like voices and stuff that some of which were completely and utterly inappropriate, especially nowadays. And you go right back to um, dad jokes and, and the worst puns you'd ever ever yeah. heard. Well, I mean, he, he grew up in the time of Don Rickles and Robin Williams. and Yeah. Oh, I mean, sure. That, that, was com- that is comedy. That, those oh, guys yeah. are a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you're going to be on this podcast. It's terrific. Maybe, maybe one day you'll have your own and uh, maybe it'll be someday soon. It'll be good. We'll see, see how, 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 how ambitious I get. They, I don't think I'll be doing a podcast anytime soon, but we, I looked at doing a, uh, a commentary, like a YouTube channel for, uh, for video games. Okay. I got to look at the one day and realized that I, I think I own like 400 video games. Okay. So it was like, not, well, and not to mention the ones that I'm not supposed to have, which are the, uh, my old school ones that I, I got a hold of all the old school ones. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I had those and I literally have tens, 
tens of thousands of games. My goodness. I'm not sure of a format yet, whether it would be like the type of thing where it's just you're serious about it or whether you just have a few drinks and play a video game and and, mm. and, and reminisce, especially if it's a game that you haven't played for 20 or 30 years or whatever. Yeah, they, they, they come with uh, like memories are attached to them for sure. It'd be a good time. For sure, yeah. Like that's what I know with this old system I had the one time with a, a couple of our mutual buddies there and uh, I just asked them which ones that they remember from childhood and I load them up and, and when they came over then we went through all of them and just and you get talking about it and a few drinks always helps. <laughs> Did they, uh, you ever get into the, the Jurassic Park Sega Genesis game? I have played it and uh, and I just looked it up again just a little while ago. Just to, I was kind of doing my research. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely it was quite the game. It's a good game probably back in the day, but it's uh, it's uh, kind of cool the way they did it when you look at it even now. So, yeah, I remember the yeah, it looked really neat. It was a good looking game. You going through the jungle and stuff like that. It was still a platform yeah. side scroller, but well, considering that, I mean, uh, Steven Spielberg doesn't have a great track history. Like, I mean, <laughs> they did the ET video game, which is like the worst video game in the history of video games. <laughs> And the Indiana Jones ones are terrible too. Like a few of them were bad, I guess, but a lot of them were pretty bad. I guess conversely, yeah, the the Lucas Arts and Entertainment, the, their games are all terrific. And uh, yeah, Spielberg did not have the same touch. Yeah, yeah, well, Lucas Arts is, is all over the place too. They've got some great ones, and they got some real lemons as well. But it's that way with that's the way video games are. Well, speaking of uh, video games and cool technologies and stuff like that, you mentioned kind of in our in our air quote pre-meeting that. Um, for the past 20 years, every time you either get new speakers or or you move houses or something like that, that uh, you turn to Jurassic Park to, to help you out with something. What was that? That's for, for setting up a surround sound system. That's cool. Uh, I, have certain, I have certain things that I always try out when I uh, – and I haven't had surround sound that long, but, I mean, even sound systems I had before that, the, the go-to was always uh, certain ones. Jurassic Park's one of the number ones. Like if you if your base can is not big enough, <laughs> that you can put a glass down and shake it off the table, then <laughs> you're you're not doing a very good job. And uh, I remember my cousin Matt in Windsor years ago uh, worked at Future Shop, and he managed to get a, himself a discount on on audio equipment. And we went over and we hooked up. I think I had a DVD player, and he didn't have one yet, but he had all the other stuff. So we hooked it all up, and yeah, he could shake that glass right off the table. And yeah. so like the one system I have now which is nothing crazy but uh it could definitely do that it fills the room yeah yeah and, and with the new 75 inch tv I, I haven't i haven't actually played jurassic park on this new tv but i'm sure it would be uh, quite impressive so what moments sound the best in surround sound when you get it up and you go ah this is just right what parts of the movie really well jurassic park way? obviously the the t-rex scene is awesome yeah and then they have good it's, it's a good soundtrack too so it's good to be able to hear uh, different. I assume it was an orchestra that used. Sure, must have been. Uh, and for me, that's the thing. Like a lot of people, especially nowadays, don't bother adding the sound system to go with the TVs. And most of these movies are all designed to have amazing sound. Like mm-hmm. that's part of the product. That's part of the experience. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why, like, you try something like Jurassic Park on a sound system. It was a go-to, and, and that was relevant. But there's a couple. Like I almost always tried uh, Days of Thunder. Okay. Because on a sound system, you can actually hear the cars going around in the room. Oh, wow. Or something like Top Gun's another good one. Okay. Um, or there's certain military ones where you can actually hear the helicopter blades. Again, when you test out the surround sound, you can always hear the helicopter blades going around. Oh, Transformers. The original Transformers. 
when it starts off there's there's some scenes that are really good for surround sound like when the like the cartoon 86 is it or 83 no no, no. oh sorry like the movie oh. the first movie they did there's a few scenes that okay where the sound was really sounds really nice on the surround sound. right that'd be cool if tom cruise had to play a character in jurassic park who would you like him to be if he flew out of days of thunder and straight into jurassic park probably the accountant because that way he gets eight <laughs> yeah. it'd be a small meal yeah. You're allowed to say that. <laughs> is it Gennaro? Gennaro's his name in the book? That's right. The lawyer. Yeah, the lawyer, yeah. Yeah, I got further again today. I was reading the, uh, I'm up to about halfway. Halfway? That's a long, it's not a short book. It's all right to take a little while. Uh, it's not that long of a book. I just I just haven't had a lot of time to get at it. But Well, yeah, I guess compared to not 800 pages, but it's all right. Yeah, well, yeah, it's no Robert Jordan or anything, but... <laughs> You mentioned that you have um, you tried the VR experience. What's the Jurassic Park VR experience? There's one that comes with a, an Oculus, sorry, Oculus Quest, and it uh, basically there's two. It's like a movie almost, but it's in VR. There's one where you go and you visit uh, Brachiosaurus. You see like the eggs. I think that's how it goes. You see the eggs, and then you see the uh, dinosaur come down and close to you and look at you like down low. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the other one is a T-Rex and yeah. then a T-Rex comes right up to you. I've tried a few of them, so I might have it mixed up, but I know there's uh, there are a few experiences and I was just looking at a new one today and it's kind of a, a game that has, it's not a Jurassic Park one. It's a, a game that has dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, but it's trying try to recreate that same experience. And I imagine over the years, we're going to see a big, uh, big increase as far as media when it comes to things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's. What I was thinking about the other day when, especially when you compare some of the things between the movies and the books, it's almost it almost feels like he wrote the the movie or sorry wrote the books, planning on a movie because mm-hmm. he so far what what I read in the book he he tends to foreshadow things quite a bit. Yeah. And there certain ones are pretty obvious, which, I mean, is perfect for somebody who's making a movie. Like, would he made it really easy for Spielberg? You just go go through and. Oh yeah, here's a foreshadowing. Yeah, here's yeah. a foreshadowing. What could go and wrong? Also, <laughs> basically, he made Spielberg's job easy. The next like three movies are already every point is already foreshadowed in the first one. Have you noticed that going through the book? Like, oh geez, this wasn't in the first film. This was in the second film. Well, I've noticed that now too. There's yeah, there's a lot of that. There's obviously way more technical stuff in the book. Yeah, which yeah. is uh, is nice. But I can understand why they wouldn't have done that in the movie because it, I don't think it would have worked. No. But there are definitely things that they changed that I don't really see what the point of it was. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, they had to take some characters out. And as they start taking characters out, and I guess that's just for the sake of longevity, as they take them out, they start taking out plot points that they're involved with or changing that. And so then they got to take those out. And then as it kind of shrinks, it's like, I don't know, like a game of Jenga. And then what you're left with is this weird structure that doesn't really look like uh, the, the book at all. And it's missing so many weird pieces, and uh, it's about to collapse. And that's about that's about how it goes. It's bizarre how, as they adapt a film from a book, that it, you it becomes a shell of what it once was. And it's got it. I like now, I guess, with these uh, opportunities with streaming services, where they take intellectual properties and they're able to give it more bandwidth. There's there's you know eight episodes that show show something instead of uh, like. Can you imagine? Um, Game of Thrones as a movie versus multiple seasons, right? I mean, there's ability to, to, to yeah. show the whole picture. I would picture. imagine they, they would definitely have to uh, 
Game of Thrones, if they made it in a movie, it would have been a completely different experience because they would have had to shorten it so much. Mm-hmm. And they definitely would have been able to cover as many characters, like you said. I was like, one that came to mind when you're talking was uh, Jack Reacher. Okay. I don't know if you've seen that new series yet, but the uh, I, I haven't read the book for that yet. Although now that I, want, I now I want to go back and actually read the books because I saw the movie with Tom Cruise. Yeah. And it was okay, but then I watched the show, and the show was amazing. Mm-hmm. And they just they, they dive in the characters so much. Well, from what I understand, so much better than the. Uh, I haven't actually read the books yet, so I got to mm-hmm. get there. It's weird weird to be. Uh, Talking about shows and movies before the books, when for years that's what I, I always read everything. Yeah. And then, and a lot of things coming out now are all books that I read years ago. Like now they have uh, Wheel of Time on Amazon, and they have well like, uh, Game of Thrones. I read all those before. Oh yeah. Well, except for he never finished them. <laughs> um, yeah. Now he's got a new project coming out, and he still can't finish the book from the original series. Mm-hmm. Well, the Jack Reacher stuff, or not Jack Reacher, um, Jack Ryan that they had i think on okay. amazon that was all um a tom clancy character he was in he was in like yep. a whole bunch of books that he did i don't know if they were ever tied together they're just the same characters in different scenarios in different universes time and again but uh, then they made that in like into a series as well instead of it just being a film which is pretty interesting yeah i haven't watched that yet either yeah i know it's it's they definitely do a better job with the new and especially they're willing to put the money in the budget so because mm-hmm. i know the I was I've been worried for years about the Wheel of Time series from Robert Jordan not being redone right, but I haven't read the books for a while, so I'm sure there are things that they butchered in the, in the series. <laughs> but the series I thought wasn't too bad. One of the advantages I feel like that the, the this present uh, trilogy of Jurassic World films has going for it is that they have have built it and written it and filmed it with the perspective of it being a three-part series. It's going to tell a larger story, which the first three films did not get to do. They had no idea what they were doing at that point in terms of, oh, we're going to do a sequel? Okay, and then like the sequel to the book and the sequel to the film could not line up because I'm not going to spoil it for you, but how the book ends makes, makes many things impossible. And so the second book had to be written and designed to reinvigorate the franchise that no longer existed at the end of the first book and so that was somewhat disregarded in the film because the end of the movie in a much different way than they do the, the novel and then the third one was like like complete fiction like they had no idea what they were doing and they somehow just kind of stuffed some characters into the onto the onto this island and they made it work but it would have been nice if there was some foresight to think, oh, maybe this is a lot. Like, they must have known what a what a presence the Jurassic Park was going to have. But this mentality of building franchises and having, you know, three or four films attached. The, the, the cinematic universe wasn't a concept. Like, they were still rebooting King Kong every five years. Well, I, I think that's the problem with all, with all series that came out, like, uh, 80s, 90s. I, I think it was, probably it was Disney and Marvel probably reorganized the way things work. Now you have these universes, and and I was going to say the Jurassic Park now seems like they're trying to do that because I just got done watching the I watched the entire animated Jurassic Park on Netflix, right? And it was it was pretty good. It it's based for teenagers, obviously. So there's parts where you're like you're screaming at the screen, like why are you so dumb? Like don't, <laughs> don't go in there. Well, although you do that in the movies too, but but it was well done, and it was tied directly into well, they kind of tried to tie it into everything. But I think it's tied into the original 
kind of storyline and the Jurassic World storyline. So they tie it all together. It takes place, actually takes place during the same time as Jurassic World mm-hmm. and goes through the, uh, these, I think it's supposed to be, well, I don't know, it's season, I've finished season four and I think it's takes it there about six months after Jurassic World. Mm-hmm. And, the, and these kids have been on the islands the whole time. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I haven't seen Camp Cretaceous. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was talking about. But yeah, it's, uh, the kids basically it follows the lives of these kids for six months after they get left on Jurassic World. Okay. So like all the events Jurassic World go on and, and then everybody leaves and these kids are still stuck on the island. Right on. Okay. So it follows them and, and then they end up going from one island to another island in like season four or whatever, which is one of the other islands that's from the movies. Okay. Very And I didn't realize until until I watched that and then I've, I've just recently played one of the video games, one of the new ones. I didn't realize that there's supposed to be all these islands that are all together mm-hmm. and that makes up the Jurassic world or whatever. And there's basically dinosaurs on all the islands. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a product of the second book in the, in the first novel, of course, uh, there's just the one Island, but in the second book, they, they introduce a chain of islands and there's the five deaths. Okay. The Cinco Mortes is what they call it. And the, the evolution game. And I think that there's a, a second evolution game, Jurassic Park evolution, Oh, is it called Jurassic World Evolution or Jurassic Park Evolution? I think it's Jurassic World, actually. I can tell you because I, I was playing it. Jurassic World um, Evolution. I got a free copy of that on Epic, I think. Right on. And uh, I, I turned it on in order to research for this. <laughs> and uh, and then I got addicted and I played probably dozens of hours of it. Yeah, that's part of it. I think I'm controlling all five deaths right now. I have all five islands. At 100%? Or what, are you, what do you need? 90%? Uh, I don't think I'm at 100%, no. no. I'm still dealing with... And, and I can't keep the damn raptors in the pen. They will not stay in the pen. It is so annoying. It doesn't matter. There could be a concrete wall with electrified fences, and they will not stay in the pen. <laughs> and they break the walls, and then the T-Rex gets out, and they eat all my, my tourists. <laughs> you got a problem on your park, Brown. <laughs> well, I know. And you can't... It is most animals. As long as you keep them happy, they're fed, they're they're healthy. They stay in the pens, but those raptors will not stay in the pen. They they break out every time. They just do it to piss mm. me off. I'm very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cool game. I've I played too many hours on that too. It's cool. <laughs> so like now that you've gotten, you're saying halfway through the book. What what kind of surprises or what's been unexpected so far? Some of the stuff is obviously stuff that they changed that, that threw me off. Like so far, the lawyer isn't like the the snivelly kind of whiny guy that they had in the in the movie. That's right. The Malcolm character, I can't help but see the actor or hear the actor in my head every time I'm reading the book. Yeah. Because I've seen the movie so many times, so I, I his voice just comes in my head at this point. So it's unfortunate that I didn't read the book first uh-huh. because now all I can picture is him. Same with Grant. Well, no, Grant actually. Because of the way they explain Grant in the book, I could picture a different character for Grant because because mm-hmm. they, they the character in the book is a lot different from the character in the movie. Like they, it was a lot more of a, a lot more rugged, I guess. I picture him picture kind of as a, a Gerard Butler versus a Sam Neill. Yeah, I was going to use an older reference. I was going to go more with like a I don't want to say Chuck Norris, but more like a <laughs> um, oh Grizzly Adams. That's it. Grizzly Adams. Okay, Grizzly Adams. Okay, so Grant, you, so when I picture the beard, I think like a little bit shorter cropped, but uh, yeah, Grizzly Adams. Well, it probably would be, and, and I think if you read the the way it is in the book, it would be shorter cropped, but 
It's just, uh, so I'm just, I was just picturing kind of someone who's more of an outdoorsy. Well, sure. I'm trying to think of a, a good reference off the top of my head. Like, Grizzly well, Adams might be too rugged. You make a really good point because they, in the book, are like two months in to to working in the Badlands. And I don't know that he's gone to the barber while he's camping out there or not. And he probably didn't have a chance to stop at the barber on the way to the island. So he might have a an unruly beard. As opposed yeah, I was to just, a, I'm just pitching it in the look more than the beard. So yeah. The, the, uh, the long hair and the whole the whole package. Grizzly Adams. <laughs> there's that meme where he just gives you the nod. Have you seen that one? Uh, I've seen a bunch of them. There's, there's <laughs> quite a few. Especially when, now that I have a beard, I, people send me the Grizzly Adams stuff all the time. <laughs> okay. Grizzly Adams. That's good. With uh, with Malcolm, yeah, he's supposed to be like this Texan, and and Goldblum didn't play him like Texan at all. He he played him with um like after after the fly, but he was he was definitely like a sex symbol, and he played he played Ian Malcolm sexy, he played him real sexy, and yeah, and he yeah, was he was uh... horn dogging as best as he could with uh with that snarl, and Goldblum's. Got that delivery that I don't know that he used it quite as much, but it really appeared in Jurassic Park. And then it was like an Independence Day, and now it's like he can't go anywhere without stammering and stuttering his lines out, and that's become his gimmick. And it kind of birthed itself in that Ian Malcolm presentation. But he was definitely, uh, you know, topless in all his roles leading up to that uh, that moment. Yeah, well, yeah, I remember like the fly and that kind of stuff. It was, yeah, yeah. definitely. He's got a little fly yeah. in him, and all of a sudden his shirt's off, and he's doing... Acrobatics all over the all over the the loft. <laughs> yeah. Shoot me. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in a long, long time. Yeah. But yeah. So anyhow, I I I keep getting his voice stuck in my head when I when I read the book. Yeah. Um, most of the other characters I can picture the way the character um, is, except for maybe uh, Hammond. Is yeah. Hammond or Hammond. With a D, um, yeah, Hammond. I still see him. I still, I still see him as the guy from the movie. Yeah. Although, having read it in the description of the book, um, they they really make him out to being like really short. Okay. Um, where the actor in the movie, I think, was short, but he wasn't that short. Whereas the the book makes him sound like really short. Well, this is an interesting um, line of questioning because the portrayal of, of of Hammond in the movie, he's this jovial, friendly. An emotionally invested kind of marketer. He really wants to show this island off, and he want, and he. I think he believes that it's safe. I think he really does. Whereas I think in the book he's portrayed as this guy that's like, ready to the end of his life. He's getting impatient. He's cutting corners. He isn't listening to people anymore, and he's like, just open it as soon as we can. This has got to get done. And I think he's portrayed in the book as being stubborn, careless. To me, he's this guy that's like, I gave you the dream. I gave you the tools. I gave you the money. You make it happen. Don't come to me with excuses and problems. Just make it work. And that's kind of what he provides. And it doesn't like he's not a nice guy. He he calls people names all left and right. He's he's pretty rude all the time. Whereas in the film, he's entirely different. He's really very sweet. I wondered as you read it, do you still do you still hear Richard Attenborough's nice accent as opposed to like he's never portrayed as British in in the, in the book in any way. You don't really hear where he's from. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely notice the difference in, in, in those characters because the uh, definitely, I would say, a little more harsh. And the uh, uh, I was just reading the part where they were um, they were on the tour, 
and he's listening to it over the mic and, and he's basically angry that they're they're constantly that he thinks they're all being negative mm. even though they're just kind of experiencing the bark whereas he's getting angry about the fact that they're not all overjoyed and bouncing around and just happy to see dinosaurs and yeah the fact that they're actually talking about or talking about it uh, analytically is, is really annoying him yes yeah that's right they're scrutinizing they're they're supposed to be you know providing their opinion consulting and stuff like that and and he wants them to just enjoy it yeah the, enjoy the spectacle and of course as a, you know you're right you're entirely right the the analytics forbid them from doing that well it's, and especially the uh, well Malcolm of course and he and I know the part I just got done reading like he, I was almost waiting for him to say something about feeding Malcolm to like one of the dinosaurs <laughs> he was that annoyed with he basically figured that Malcolm was out to wreck his part at, yeah. at the point that I was reading and he, but he doesn't seem to have a very good opinion even of his own grandkids no who uh picking out issues with what's going on mm-hmm. if things aren't going just the way he likes it he he doesn't have a very high opinion about about anybody or anything yeah he's, he's painted entirely differently in in the book and so I, I i wondered to somebody who who goes in wondering what to expect how that feels just going wait a minute this is nothing like what i was expecting and, or or maybe it was i don't know what were you expecting when you picked it up what what, what did you uh if you were to guess did you think it was gonna be really close to the movie or I kind of cheated ahead of time because I wasn't sure if I was going to have time to read it, so I went ahead and watched a comparison between the book and the movie. Okay. So I already know kind of what the major differences are before I started reading, mm -hmm. but it's still it's still a big shock, or not a big shock, but still interesting to see um, how much different certain things are. Like, I, I probably saw in this comparison that, that they had switched the kids around in the movie, but I didn't realize, didn't pick up on it. And then when I'm reading the, the book, and... I like the way it is in the book actually better. Like having the the son, the, or the kid seems to be around the same age as the one in the movie, mm. but yet his in the movie the sister's older, whereas and they go more of a teenager type vibe. Whereas in the in the book she's supposed to be uh, quite young, isn't she? She's only uh, yeah a little little kid. She's so about it gives it a seven eight different, yeah. She's seven or eight. I think Timmy's eleven or, or something like that. Because she was supposed to be about the same age as the little girl that was in at the beginning of the book. The one that gets nipped at the beginning is supposed... They're about the same age as Alex and um, Tina, which is okay. interesting. And I, I thought it would be very interesting. What would it be like to have Tina switch with Lex and to have like this observant, curious, uh, interesting character that was Tina at the beginning of the book versus like kind of like the whiny, bratty, sporty Lex. I thought, wouldn't it be neat to have switched those two? Uh, and then gone through Jurassic Park through the through the eyes of Tina instead of, of Lex. But, I don't know, that would have been neat. But then you don't get the conflict between the kids. They kind of had to, for the sake of dialogue, quarrel. Or else, they would, whether they just agree with each other all the time, <laughs> would be no fun. And, and Well, I mean, they seem to balance things out. But, like, another thing that I noticed that I thought was unnecessary, although I guess maybe when you start removing other things, you have to switch things around. But uh, in the book, um, Grant talks about liking kids whereas in the movie yeah he i think he, he actually says I, I i can't stand kids or whatever mm. he doesn't like kids he gets like so in the book there isn't so many character arcs not a lot of people start learn a lesson and then grow from it like at all the book just doesn't do it but in the film yes uh grant's his, his great journey is that i don't like kids i don't want kids and at the end he cuddles with the kids and he's he's found that ah yes there's 
there's a relationship to be built with these little things and and it's worthy of uh, my time i heard although i could not cite my source that lex was going to be young but for the, her to have a crush on him and for it to be palatable on screen they needed to make her a bit older okay Which, but makes sense maybe maybe somebody just said that one day and i heard that and i didn't forget it or maybe it's true i don't know it could be either of those things <laughs> Well, they do so many uh, shows about how big movies like this are made that mm-hmm. it gets confusing as to which ones are, are rumors and which ones are, are actual facts. Like I, uh, one of the other things I watched in my research was uh, I rewatched the uh, movies that made us on Jurassic Park. Okay. They go through, uh, I think it's on Netflix. They go through all the uh, directors and producers, and they, they don't typically interview the actors, but they do interview. Uh, can't think of the name of the actor, but the one that played Grant in the movie. Sam Neill. And, uh, Sam Neill, that's yes. it. They do interview a couple of the actors and then a bunch of the producers and stuff. But they go through everything and they explain how they came up with a lot of their ideas and what they had to do to get the movie made. And then uh, it goes through all the special effects and how they convinced them to go with uh, computer-generated special effects rather than going with claymation. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of the mock-ups that was done. The, the special effects guy was named Phil Tippett. And I've seen some of the, the pieces he's done with the raptors going through the kitchen. And yeah. it's pretty cool. I don't know how the finished product would have looked. I mean, it would have looked like claymation. It would not have not looked like claymation, which I think looks cool. I, I've always liked it, but but it doesn't... I don't know. Like, this was a big step. And they took, I guess, a gamble on it. It looks super cool when they find... Like, that Brachiosaur, that first opening shot is just... It blows your mind. It blows everybody's mind. Everybody on the screen gets their mind blown. Everybody in this audience gets their mind blown. It's really well done. And that it, that's kind of like the proof of concept that like, hey, can we get this to work? And that CGI shot blows it out of the water. And then the rest of the film works. And I think that the the, the total quantity of like CGI minutes is like in single digits. It's not very many actual time well, on screen that CGI is actually used, but it's impactful. It's they had to mix it up, so it's it's a combination. And, and something a lot of times they would use claymation to get the motion right because the guys are having a hard time animating um, the way a dinosaur should move and things like that. And then other times, like any, they said, anytime it pans in on the face of the dinosaur, it was a real dino, like it was a actual model that they built, mm-hmm. so it was life size. So like the T Rex, and they had an animatronic T Rex they could use for certain scenes. And then if it was a farther away shot, then they go to the uh, CGI because you can't tell farther away that it's not real. Whereas if you get too close, it looks too, back then anyways, it looked too fake. And then well, everything when it, they said when everything was done, you still had to go back and go in and actually do some hand uh, or like some actual work on the film itself oh, yeah? in order to get in order to smooth everything out, get things because back then they couldn't do everything in a, in a computer like they can now. Mm hmm. I was watching something where they're pointing out how when you watch that movie, for the most part, it, it seems like a smooth experience because that's the way they, they blend things together. They only use, I think it's 24 frames per uh, second uh, as far as the way the film's made, which is standard. But with the, uh, they're saying of the movie like Jurassic World, plus, plus they only had so many dinosaur scenes, so mm-hmm. they could concentrate a lot of effort on making sure they're perfect. Whereas, you watch something like Jurassic World, especially the new Jurassic World, the Dominion that's coming out. Mm-hmm. I think they said there's something like 37 different dinosaurs in it. <laughs> and 
they said there's basically dinosaurs on the screen at all times. So they say even even with big studios doing all the computer animation and the high tech Lucas Arts software, they said when you actually watch the movie, there's probably going to be a lot of scenes where it looks hokey because they're not they don't have the time to go back over it and check it scene for scene mm. or like frame for frame to make sure that they didn't screw something up or some dinosaur doesn't run weird or so you're, you're going to probably see more defects. Even though they, they might look nice, you might see more defects in a brand new movie than you'll see in old ones because mm-hmm. they don't take the time to edit it like they would. Well, I don't want to prejudge Dominion, but I'm going to do that, I guess. But like, <laughs> I really loved how, in, in especially in the first one, but in, in the subsequent ones, there's a progression. But in the first one, when a dinosaur is on the screen, you see it, and there it is. And it's it's your... You could, it's like if you were in front of a dinosaur, it's got your attention and you're looking right at it and that's all there is to see it. And as you move along, they become like part of the background. Like in the latest film where they're fleeing from a volcano, it's just, you can't see any of the dinosaurs because there's too many of them. And it's, A, it sounds great. Like, what are you complaining about? You're getting all these dinosaurs, but you don't, I don't know, you get, get to see them. They, they, they just, they're here, they're there, they're gone. And you're like, oh, you just saw 30 dinosaurs. Congratulations. Like, okay. <laughs> but, but I didn't get to really feel like they were there in a way and i don't know if you say there's going to be i don't know i don't want to prejudge it but like i said i am well for sure it, it blends in the background if you have too much uh too much detail going on it makes for some cool scenes but it's mm-hmm. it's not as impressive like i mean the most impressive scenes are always the ones where there's you have like the t-rex taking over the entire scene by himself basically or you have an interaction between one or two characters and the dinosaur, like with a raptor scene in any of the movies, pretty much. Yeah. Or uh, I, I know I haven't got there yet in the book, but I'm getting the impression from the books that the raptors were played to be much more evil, much more uh, ruthless. Or not, I don't want to say ruthless because they're animals, but um, it, they make them out so far in the book, they make them sound a lot more like, I don't know, like a tiger or a, or a shark or something, where it's maybe it's not meant to be evil but it, it's going out of its way to hunt and kill and mm-hmm. whereas in the movies they kind of especially i mean in the newer movies the raptors are part of the heroes yeah it's interesting right the way the book kind of lays it out so far the raptors there's no way they'd be heroes they'd be like they're the they're the uncontrolled like it almost makes it sound like you could train a t-rex before you could train a raptor because the raptor <laughs> would stab you in the back yeah i think um i think they are portrayed as like like cat-like in that a cat will never not pounce on a mouse that scurries by. A cat will never not find itself immediately alert if a if a bird is nearby. They just they're ready to go at any at a moment's notice. They just their eyes get big, their ears go back, and they will catch. They'll play. They they pounce on. They kill, just like that because that's what they're kind of hardwired to do. And I think the Velociraptors may have been played to 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 be like that. They're hyper carnivorous. They can't help themselves. They just they just love pouncing, catching, taking, and that works. I guess, <laughs> except for they're very patient when they stalk people, uh, when they especially get close. <laughs> I found I found in a, in the book, I guess I don't want to ruin it for you. They do a lot more kicking in the book. There's a lot more yeah. of, of they take that claw and they kick they kick everybody a lot. And you didn't get any kicks. You don't see any kicking in in the movies. And that's kind of you see jumping, you see grabbing, you see pouncing, you see biting. You don't see the kicking. And I and like. I don't know. I guess that's a little gruesome to put on film. 
but like the whole mythology of the velociraptor is the claw and uh the book gives it to you you get some kicking in the book <laughs> you can look yeah. forward to that well it definitely uh it definitely pumps it up more as far as i'm expecting more gruesomeness from mm-hmm. raptors in the book than than the movie um I mean, they were scary enough in the movies, but the uh, definitely looks like there's going to be, uh, <laughs> having not read the end of the book, it definitely sounds like they're going to be going a lot more detail with the uh, the Raptors. <laughs> there, there's some scenes at the end that, like, still, to, to my, like, how the actors, or the characters in the book just made the decisions they do to, like, I don't know, if they're crazy, if they're just written wrong, or they're brave beyond any measure I can comprehend. The things that they wind up doing at the end, I just don't even understand. But that's okay. It's okay. Have you found any exciting parts where you're like, when you're reading, go, oh, that's a line from the movie? Have you found, as you're going through it, like, oh, yeah, I recognize that? Well, the, the most recent one was the, uh, and I think it's the same in the movie, the book, where, where uh, Hammond, well, he sees Nedry and, he's, and he goes to walk away and he mumbles under his breath, uh, he's a slobber. Or I think after he gets up to go get a Coke, in the book, he gets up, goes and gets a Coke. Yeah. And he says something about he's a slob. And I think it's the same in the movie, movie as well. Mm-hmm. Now that I mean that stood out because it's 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 when he's starting when uh, Hammond's starting to turn nasty towards his guests or well his employees I guess in that case some of the lines or definitely some of the Malcolm lines yeah he must have been taken right from the book that's right they they there's I mean although in the book he has way way more actual dialogue than he has in the movie mm-hmm. they definitely he definitely some of the classic lines you can and some of the explanations he has on like chaos theory and you can definitely see where it's pulled pulled from. Although they explain it a lot better in the book than they do in the movie. In the movie, it's just kind of something he says. Whereas in the book, they actually go through what. What mm-hmm. I'm assuming I've never done any reading on what chaos theory actually is, or if it's actually a thing. But it is a uh, thing. I don't get it. It has like these three elements. The first one I kind of get. The second one I really don't, and the third one is way beyond me. And those three things. Uh, are complicated and unpredictable and therefore chaotic and i i wonder if like if anything that's unpredictable is therefore chaotic which seems like an oversimplification but it feels more like a philosophy like a murphy's law sort of thing than it does a calculation like i can't imagine what data malcolm would put into a formula to make this calculation i can't i can't figure out what that would even look like so I don't know how he, he, he reinfirms like this isn't my hope. I don't want you guys to fail. I calculated it. This isn't a prediction. This isn't a, it has nothing to do with what I want. There's no way you're going to make this park work. <laughs> you can't control nature. That that premise is flawed and I showed it to you and you went and did it anyhow and uh it's going to have very real consequences for human life. Yeah, definitely. It's it's uh the detail they go into especially in the book is uh, I a lot of it goes over my head, and I'm an engineer, and I still can't understand what he's talking about. Well, what are you looking forward to? What do you think is going to happen at the end? If you had to guess, I guess you've done your research and you, you kind of spoiled yourself yeah, a little bit. Like, a little if bit you were to predict, yeah. say, having read the first half, Nedry has only just left to to get a coke. Is that where you're at? Uh, no, he's he's still in the jeep, and he's on his way to. Suppose you had a three minute run down to the dock to. to get the samples away wow and then he's coming back so that's that's because i think the the uh the chapter that i'm just about to start is called what called the long road 
Uh, there's a chapter called Net- The Main Road. Good for you. The Main Road. The Main you? Road. Well, I'll tell you what. You're probably, if I was to guess, the next time you pick it up, prepare to read about 150 pages straight because it. Uh, that's when. That's where it always goes. Because <laughs> it goes, when when Nedry decides uh, when he once he gets lost, that's when rubber hits the road. That's for sure. It's awesome. Yeah, I probably would have done more earlier, except for the more I got into it. Especially, I think I read the part on the uh, the raptor pens, and that's when I kind of realized, hmm, maybe I don't want to read this right before I go to bed. <laughs> so I was like, You'll never, I'll yeah. put this down. I'll pick it up someday when I'm a little bored at work, and then then I'll get back into it, which is what happened today. Because it's hard to put down when you get going, man. It's it's super cool. It's a yeah, lot of fun. I don't doubt it. That's I, and I'm like that with books. So I, and some books it's really bad. Like I said, like something like Wheel of Time, like you can hit a certain point maybe 400 pages in and then you can't put it down well it's a 1500 page book so you're reading for two days straight <laughs> and i'm a fast i was a fast reader i know i'm definitely slower now which is probably a good thing because i i think pay more attention when you're you when you have to work your way through it whereas mm-hmm. i was reading so fast 10 years ago that i probably skipped through a lot of details there's a bit there's two things to that like one is if it takes you a couple weeks to get from the front to the back, you can you can easily forget kind of what happened at the front. That usually pays off very strongly at the end of a good book. And so it, sometimes that connectivity, I like that when I'm done, browse through the first couple chapters, just skim them and go, oh yeah, look at that, look at that, and remind myself, and go, oh yeah, that was a good book after all, or even better than I thought. But if you go fast, the hope is that you'll remember it by time. I remember the last book that I was super into and I like stayed up late and I got up early and I just couldn't stop reading was was a Crichton book when they released Dragon Teeth. I remember staying up two or three days in a row just getting as much through that as I could. And it wasn't good. It wasn't great. Then I did it because I was excited. And that was all there was to it. <laughs> but uh, some of them can be really exciting. I was so excited for that book. Like There's a lot of series like that that I've had where it's... Uh, you wait for the first next one to come out, and then when you and a lot, I used to read the entire series over again. Oh, yeah. I've like, read Game of Thrones probably six times. Really? Because I probably reread it every time before I got the new one. <laughs> um, and then I got to watch all my characters die. Every <laughs> Spo- single, every single. Spoiler book. alert. <laughs> yeah, I'm oh, sorry. Well, I don't know. But Robert Jordan, same way. Like, I mean, I used to reread them a bunch, but then I I stopped because it was just it was just too much. You just you couldn't dedicate that much time to mm. i think the last time i read game of thrones was at the cottage and i and i spent way too much time reading books at the cottage whereas i should have been doing other things i was peaceful but yes yeah, so back in the day i used to read books all the time like not just all the time but i reread them multiple times mm-hmm. um, there's so many like guys trainer books on the history of scotland that i've read like, 10 times and that's why i know so much about scottish history even though i've, I've found a sense that he was nearly as accurate as as he thought he was. Right on. That's interesting. I found I was looking into it. Hammond is a Scottish name. Uh, I have a very Scottish name. My my name is is Robert Malcolm Duncan <laughs> Brown. That's a good one. We were talking the other day because we were saying that the uh, in a Scottish family you pass the same names down from generation to generation. You might well necessarily it's not like certain other cultures where you name your son the same name as you are, but mm-hmm. Somewhere in your cousins or whatever, the same names would appear over and over again. And I've done our family history, and you can go back, and it makes it really hard because every generation, 
they'll be the same name. So it might <laughs> yeah. be different families or branches of the family, but it'll be the same name. So like every generation, there'd be a Robert or, well, sorry, no, that's not true. Robert's not one of our uh, normal ones, but there, there's uh, John, Peter, uh, Margaret, definitely for a girl's name. I think Jane was done a few times in the, uh, oh, well, my grandfather's name, Neil. That was, I think, a recurring one as well. Neil, too, yeah. Well, the Scottish names we got in the book include, we have Hammond, which is a Scottish name. Malcolm, Ian Malcolm, has a Scottish name. Harding is a Scottish name for hardworking and strong. Uh, Muldoon is Scottish and Irish. I mean, either way, because te- technically, the Scots were Irish. Their clan, clan of Irish people came back to Scotland or came to Scotland. They probably would have been in Scotland hundreds of years before that. But Scotland took over the West Coast, called it, I think it was uh, Del- Delradia. And that was the land of the Scots. And then when King Kenneth merged Scotland together, the different kingdoms of Scotland together into one country, that's when it took on the name Scotland, because he was the king of Delradia, and he became the king of the Greater Scotland. Um, but that could be one of those historical facts that that has that was written about sixty years ago, which is wrong now, because I know they they found that some of these kings in the stories they're one king, but in real life they're actually like a family, of, like they were a grandfather of like three of them maybe. Like all the deeds are ascribed to one guy, but it was actually the the grandfather, the father, and the son, who okay. the grandson who did the actual deeds because it took a hundred years to do them, but or well back then they only lived like thirty years, so take you ninety years to do what would have been done in in the stories might have been done by one one character. Interesting, lots of Scots. Crichton was definitely. I think Crichton might be a Scottish name as well. So he. Um, it's possible. They definitely. They, he, they seem to use like it seems like his characters seem to be very. Because uh, Grant. I'd say Grant might be more English, but it's definitely, uh, definitely in that British. Well, I've got a theory on that. I got a funny feeling that a lot of these characters, when Crichton was dreaming up what to call them, Grant applies for grants from the Hammond Foundation. And I thought, huh, that's, that's interesting. And who was the other one? Henry Wu. <clears throat> he needed to woo to work with him in his laboratories. And what was the other? Oh, and that Dennis Nedry is basically an anagram for nerdy, because he's the computer nerd. And I think th- yeah. those three characters that were part of like the mythology around the the Hammond Foundation, its connection to dinosaurs. I thought it's interesting how he he, and then he just kind of populated the rest of the book with uh, a couple Scots, and then uh, what did I look up? Sattler is German uh, for saddle, so you'd be a saddle maker. The other here, Regis. Ed Regis is uh, Latin for being kingly or to rule and manage, and he's the he's the guy that wishes he had more uh, responsibility for doing the things he was supposed to. And what else we got here? Arnold is German for being a strong ruler. Well, nobody's got a name that says you're a dink. <laughs> I'm sure even Dinklage means something great. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, yeah, I, I got this hunch that uh, when Crichton was just dreaming these up, yeah, he just kind of picked a bunch of names out of a, kind of a, his common ancestries, just stuff that came natural to him. I don't think he worked too hard on them. And then the ones he did do are, are seems like fairly transparent connections, like, oh, what's this guy? Oh, we'll call him Grant because he applies for grants. Well, it's probably possible. I know it, you take from what you know, 
Mm-hmm. So I know there, I've read books and movies and stuff before where, the, where people have taken names either from people they went to high school with or <laughs> I know when I when I wrote originally, um, I was writing fantasy. So I took and we used to play D&D in high school. So I would take uh, character names that were from characters that my buddies came up with and then I'd use them in my writing. Okay. So and even some of the scenarios were actually scenarios that came from our D&D games. I just changed them around and, and tried to turn it into a story. And I mean, that's how I think a lot of the original, well, not the original fantasy, but the fantasy that came out in the 90s and stuff, that was people were playing D&D in the 80s and then taking the things that they imagined in D&D and turning them into fantasy novels. That's well, cool. And I, I haven't played it in years. I bought the books the other day um, just to see. But then I think I, I bought them during COVID. It's one of those things you buy during COVID to think you're going to look at something. Mm-hmm. And they've been sitting here ever since. But um, <laughs> now that things are, are back to, are getting back to normal, it would be nice to uh, try it again, either with mm-hmm. uh, uh, either find a group and just try it or find a group of friends who are into that and uh, uh, try it again. You have quite the time just races. building a character, let alone playing a playing a mission yeah yeah i mean nowadays i mean there's computer software for that and i mean it was we had we had programs even back in the basically the early 90s we had uh software one that one of our got buddies made it was a, a character rolling software but they came up with an official software for rolling characters now they have all sorts of programs so you can do it vr now they have like dungeons dragons in vr wow uh, not not the official one yet but they have uh a spin, like games are very similar well there you go well if anybody's interested in in, in burglaring Browno, he's got vr he's got the dnd <laughs> manuals he's got surround sound he's got a big tv <laughs> that's awesome also have an axe and sword collection <laughs> well uh when you finish the book you think you come back and, and give us your final thoughts sure yeah all right, right on. We'll definitely uh, talk about it again. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to my special guest, Rob Brown, downtown Robbie Brown, for joining us. Please do not burgle his house. Uh, that was an April Fool's joke. You don't need to do that. Let's get into our text for today. Our chapter is The Shape of the Data. The Shape of the Data spans from pages 26 to 28. In the synopsis, Alice Levin notices Tina's drawing of the green lizard and suggests it looks like a dinosaur and becomes excited that it may have been a rediscovery of a believed-to-be-extinct species of dinosaur. Dr. Stone thinks Levin has an overactive imagination and refuses to indulge in her fantasies. We have a few more characters that are, uh, most of them are all familiar. We have Elena Morales. She had to calm down after the newborn had died, and then reported the animal attack as asphyxiation and sudden infant death syndrome, rather than face the criticism of being perhaps delinquent in her duties. Dr. Cruz, this poor Dr. A, works his way through med school but still can't get a first name, and B, doesn't get the complete results from the Tropical Disease Laboratory. We have Alice Levin, our new character for today. She's a technician who works at Columbia University at the Bacteriology Lab down the hall from the TDL. She's also the mother of two boys, whose kids draw dinosaurs all the time, so she can therefore recognize the drawing of a dinosaur when she sees one, though she doesn't know the names of dinosaurs. She reviews the specimen and thinks that it, too, looks like a dinosaur to her and feels like they should refer it to the American Museum of Natural History for identification. 
She also believed a surgical orderly was stalking her once upon a time. Richard Stone. He rejects Levin's dinosaur hypothesis. He apparently knows very little about dinosaurs, including that some species were small. Stone must have some concern about what Levin is telling him because he does procure the specimen from the freezer and show it to her on page 27. However, identifying the lizard as a dinosaur is, quote, impossible. Stone condescends to her as a mere technician who is uninformed with an active imagination. She believed a surgical orderly had been stalking her, which he, he thought was pretty crazy. Like she made that up. Uh, we have a mention of Dr. Simpson. He may return in a month, where the frozen specimen is expected to be waiting for him on page 27. Uh, Tina Bowman uh, returns as a mention. She's the lizard bite victim and apparently a very good dinosaur artist. We have some localities. Uh, Punta Arenas returns, where Dr. Cruz receives incompletely reported results. The Tropical Diseases Laboratory at Columbia University, where Alice Levin spots the dinosaur drawing, and incomplete reports are produced for Dr. Cruz. The Museum of Natural History, where the unidentified lizard specimen could be taken for positive identification, according to Levin. In terms of plot, um, it moves forward when Alice Levin notices Tina's drawing of the green lizard and suggests it looks like a dinosaur and becomes excited that it may be a rediscovery of a believed-to-be extinct species. In terms of stylistic techniques, uh, Crichton once again employs italics. Uh, there's one instance of italic emphasis from Alice Levin on page 28 where she says, You know, if this is a dinosaur, Richard, it could be a big deal. She offers as an understatement, and perhaps something we read with dramatic irony. We as readers are pretty well aware that, yep, this is a dinosaur, but there's something important here too, where Levin is considering the consequences of the data before her. And of course, this chapter is named The Shape of the Data. In terms of literary techniques, we have some more metaphors. Within the proteins, a quote, real monster on page 26 is found, which characterizes how we should interpret the reading of a, quote, molecular mass of 1,980,000, one of the largest proteins known. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, it's a, quote, real monster, so it obviously means that there's a consequential quantity of protein and is probably quite dangerous. So the monster metaphor here works well in projecting qualities we do know about what a monster is onto a thing that we don't know, whatever this uh, quantity of protein means. And the fragment, quote, is awaiting the return of Dr. Simpson on page 27. Well, it's not waiting, it's just a frozen hunk of meat sitting in a freezer. But this metaphor certainly infuses the MacGuffin with some character, further suggesting that this little hunk of masticated lizard is continuing to perform necessary tasks for the plot, despite it being an entirely inanimate object. And I like that it's given some character. We have, in terms of dialogue, uh, more examples of that you need conflict in your dialogue. Characters have to argue with each other. Uh, the conversation between Levin and Stone starts with Stone saying, What? and turning slowly towards her on page 27. And I wonder if there's something to be read into the slowly part. They quarrel over whether the specimen could be a dinosaur or not. Levin prods Stone asking what testing has been done for the sake of identification, and Stone refuses to indulge in her fantasies. She begs him to investigate the specimen more thoroughly. Her sense of curiosity and wonder is still alive and well, perhaps primed by the youthful influence of her two sons back home. Levin offers to take the specimen to the museum to be identified, which, for the record, the distance from Columbia University to the Natural History Museum is like a 10-minute bike ride. She could have dropped this thing off on her lunch break. But in this case, Stone's pride interferes with the pursuit of inquiry. He'd be, quote, embarrassed to even ask on page 28. Rather, he'd prefer to do, quote, nothing at all and emphatically slams the door to the freezer shut. That's final, Alice. This lizard's not going anywhere, he says. 
In science, there's been this concept that there are no stupid questions, but not in Stone's case. He's too full of pride to ask questions. He'd be embarrassed. This is an example of a concept that Malcolm, Ian Malcolm, will bring up later in the book, and that's of thin intelligence, which he attributes to brilliant minds that are without perspective. Malcolm has a term for scientific practitioners who do the work but don't care for why they do the work, and that's thin intelligence. He argues that Dr. Henry Wu is thin intelligent, that Arnold the engineer is thin intelligent too, overfocused on their task and not on what impact it may have. Thin intelligent is seeing the immediate situation, thinking narrowly, calling it being focused, but they don't see the surround nor consider the consequences. Recall from the movie the famous line from Ian Malcolm. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied over whether or not they could, they never stopped to think if they should. Malcolm sees scientists preoccupied with accomplishments on page 284. They are focused on whether they can do something. They never stop to ask if they should do something. So you can see how those quotes are related very closely. We can argue that Richard Stone falls into this category, executing a task, in this case reporting on communicable disease, with incredibly narrow focus. Insisting and refusing to not do any more in his job, nay, barring others from pursuing a greater truth because he would be embarrassed. In Malcolm's loose description of thin intelligent, he speaks of not considering the consequences. And in this case, Stone knows that this is an identif unidentified lizard that's biting children, worrying doctors in Costa Rica. Stone knows that it is poisonous, not unlike an Indian king cobra. And note, that's a nationality followed by a species name, meaning... It's the king cobra from India, not to be confused with the Indian cobra. The king cobra's toxins affect the victim's central nervous system, resulting in severe pain, blurred vision, vertigo, drowsiness, and eventually paralysis. In severe instances, this leads to cardiovascular collapse and to coma, followed by death due to respiratory failure. This can take about 30 minutes after envenomation. Large quantities of antivenom may be needed to reverse the progression of symptoms. Recall their informed Quote, it's biting local children on page 24, and Stone finds a toxicity similar to what's being described in this lizard sample and knows that it's biting children, and doctors in Costa Rica are asking if there's something they need to worry about, and all he reports is that no, there's no communicable diseases. He's technically correct and horrifically, perhaps criminally ignorant of the consequences of his actions. To make this distinction between acting responsibly with the data presented to you, Alice Levin further reinforces what the data suggests on page 28. You know, if this is a dinosaur, Richard, it could be a big deal. Yes, Alice is a plain-spoken mom with an overactive imagination that is a little too nosy for Richard Stone's preference, but she's outlined the crux of the entire novel here. Hey, the data is saying something significant, and it could mean there are significant consequences if we don't act. As Alice puts it, it could be a big deal. And we should read it this way. The title of the chapter is The Shape of the Data. Ignore the data at your own peril. And boy, if that doesn't tie directly into the overarching themes of this novel that we were alerted to from the very introduction, that great power requires great responsibility, and that we're going to bear witness to what happens when great responsibility is not shown to great power. We've seen the consequences of not being responsible. Ed Regis lying about a construction worker. People who are thin-telligent, not seeing the greater picture, lying to hide secrets of the irresponsibility. That theme continues of responsibility and safety, or, or the lack of those two things. Elena Morales intentionally lies on the baby's death report to dodge criticism. Yes, the report went unchallenged, but there must have not been an autopsy, and the mother must have not argued too much, because being eaten by wild animals, compared to dying for no reason, 
are visibly different things. Elena Morales and whomever she reported the death to both failed at their responsibilities. The lab technicians who considered their lab sample ruined by contamination and didn't report the gamma amino methionine hydro... It doesn't matter how to pronounce all that because I think it's a completely fictitious enzyme that Crichton created for this, But uh, so I won't worry about pronouncing, but uh, they failed. They, they should have included it in the report or at least suggested that it was present due to contamination, but it, it should have been in that report. And then the motif of people, characters saying, believe me, I know, continues. Believe me, I know, says Levin, continuing Crichton's tradition of having characters regularly insisting that other people trust and believe them on page 27. She qualifies that by saying, I have two boys, I'm an expert. The smallest dinosaurs were under a foot, teeny source or something, I don't know. How do you go from believe me, I know to I don't know in just two sentences? Which is exactly what a self-proclaimed expert wouldn't say. So another instance where someone insists that you trust them and then acts in ways unworthy of that trust. This is the almost episodic reminder that when someone implores you to trust them or believe them in this book, you had better not. This harkened back to Regis insisting the raptor attack was a backhoe mishap, Mike Bowman insisting that there were no snakes on the beach, and now Alice being an expert. Heroes and villains. So who are the heroes so far in this story? We naturally bristle at Ed Regis, Mike and Ellen Bowman, and Richard Stone for being difficult, argumentative jerks. And then our supporting cast, Dr. Cruz, Elena Morales, Manuel Aragon, and Alice Levin, are, are sort of there to react to the world, perhaps as instructions to the reader on how to feel during each scene and where to pay closer attention. But our heroes are the people we turn to for answers, and none of those above are going to do that. We get answers from Bobby Carter, Tina Bowman, and especially Marty Gutierrez. They've all shown curiosity, attention to detail, and a fastidious pursuit for truth, no matter how frustrated they are with the puzzle they're presented with. They set the table for what to expect from your villains and heroes going forward. Expect your villains to carry that not-my-problem attitude going forward who refuse to see the bigger picture, who take action but not stock of the consequences. And expect our heroes to perceive the world with a sense of wonder, responsibility, always asking questions and pursuing answers. They're dreamers. They have active imaginations and they carry a deep sense of personal responsibility. I bet that definition will hold up. A few other items here that kind of stick out from this uh, from this chapter. The, the cause of death has been grievously overlooked. Elena Morales, this veteran midwife at the Bahia Anasco Clinic, intentionally lies on the baby's death report to dodge criticism. The report goes unchallenged, even though, apparently, there was no autopsy. What we know is that the lizards, in fact, bit the baby a lot. And from to the toxicology report we get in this chapter, that would have poisoned the newborn with a venom similar to that of a king cobra. How a grieving mother doesn't make a complaint or statement about, about this is unimaginable. It, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, that, that part of this chapter is under protest for me. Due diligence. The saliva sample at San Jose returns. I'll be damned. I thought that was the end of it, but Crichton didn't forget. The sample reveals a great deal of serotonin, salivary proteins with an astonishing molecular mass of 1.98 million, featuring a neurotoxic poison like a primitive cobra venom. That's on page 26. And contains an enzyme marking for gen genetic engineering and not found in the wild, page 27. So it was overlooked as lab contamination. We still have the lizard specimen, which is supposed to be in the TDL freezer. Tina's picture still is around. It's, in fact, been identified by Alice Levin, but remains at the TDL. 
and there should still be Polaroids out there of this specimen. We can follow up on a couple things we mentioned in earlier episodes. In terms of the MacGuffin, the Green Lizard continues to drive the plot forward. Just as loose ends are tying up, the dinosaur drawing finds some legs and it helps carry the narrative into the second act. Building a mystery. Crichton sneakily drops the, quote, genetic engineering clue in this chapter. The gamma amino enzymes, which he cites as markers for genetic engineering, but they're ruled out as a red herring. They must just be lab contamination. Think nothing of those. When Levin recognizes Tina's picture as a dinosaur, this is the very first time we're mentioning the lizard potentially being a dinosaur, though the concept is entirely rejected at all turns. Perhaps we should be taking notes of when people say something is definitely not something as well, because it turns out those things might be true. So it leads us to, I guess, the riddle this entire first act has been asking us. Question, what is a totally real thing that you could go outside into the wild and find? A real thing right now that you might call a raptor that has three-toed feet, a bipedal stance, and a long neck, and also enzymes that serve as markers for genetic engineering. And your answer would be, well, it's got to be real, and I could actually literally right now in real life go out there and, and find it. And I would say yes. You'd say, well, I don't know what that is. But the answer is it's a genetically engineered dinosaur. That's what all these clues say. Um, just we don't get the answer in this chapter or in this uh, first act. Which begs the question, how do we read this first iteration, this first act of the novel? The first mention of dinosaurs in this book comes in this chapter, ending the first iteration. It's like the end of the first act, so to speak, and it, it tells a bit of a story. And that story is the mysterious biting lizard. So, like, I'm not sure how Crichton intended someone to interpret this mystery, because the novel has a dinosaur on the cover. If you bought it based on the title, you probably knew that Jurassic meant something to do with dinosaurs. And the description on the back says it's a story about bringing dinosaurs back from extinction. So, someone who doesn't know what Jurassic Park is about and picks this book up for the first time probably has to figure it has to do with dinosaurs. That's just... But the picture, the description, the title, that's what they're all saying. This book is about dinosaurs. And then the story begins about a mysterious creature, sometimes called a hoopia, sometimes called raptor, and, and more specifically as an unidentified green lizard. And they're all killing people. And again, all the clues are, hey, this is, this is a book about dinosaurs. So we have to guess, we have to presume, we expect that this mysterious lizard is a dinosaur. But I guess this is to be read with a sense of dramatic irony because we the readers know all along that the mysterious animals that are confounding our characters and stumping the scientists and preying on the children and babies we know that they're dinosaurs perhaps this is like watching an episode of Columbo where you know who done it before Columbo takes the case and the pleasure is really in watching how that stubborn detective manages to piece all the clues together because we as readers do not know how all the pieces fit only that there has been an injustice but instead of murder, like in Colombo, the crime is dinosaurs. The fantastic sci-fi journey we take pleasure in is seeing how the crime comes together. So let's hope that the next character we meet in this story is our proxy for Lieutenant Colombo, the pedantic, unyielding, tenacious detective who will stop at nothing until this riddle is solved. And of course, we know who that's going to be. So that just about does it for us today. Uh, before we sign off, many, many, many thanks to my special guest, Rob Brown, for joining us. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show, and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the Worst of them all, the King Street Papers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. And me, I'm on Twitter at RogersBrian22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.